0: So, we begin chapter 9, so God blessed Noah and his sons. God blessed Noah. How did he do that? Why did he do that? Better question, why does God bless us? (laughs) We're told in the early sections in Genesis that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I believe that's the greatest thing that's connected to the blessing on Noah's life is that he found grace. Noah wasn't blessed because he was the best at everything. He was so pure and holy and righteous in every way. Noah made mistakes just like everybody makes mistakes. We're gonna see one as we go through this chapter. But he was a man of faith, he believed in God, and he was a man of righteousness, and he walked with God and he trusted God. And he, every, every nail, so to speak, every piece of pitch that he put on that ark, he was trusting God one more time as he built that great big boat to house he and his family and the animals that God would save. And each step that Noah took, each time he acted and did that, for 120 years he built that ark. He was walking by faith. And he was walking by that grace that God had given him. And then it tells us in chapter eight that he sacrificed to the Lord. Noah brought himself before God at an altar. Guys, this is really important in our walk with God, that we lay our lives before the altar. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. That we lay ourselves at the altar to allow God to work on our lives. Because when we lay ourselves at the altar, we will have an altered life. Our life is altered by the altar. And Noah found grace. Noah was a man of faith. And Noah's the man who had his life altered before God. And he sacrificed to the Lord. And it says that the Lord smelled the sweet-smelling aroma of the sacrifice. Do you know that when your life is a life that's got grace connected to it and faith connected to it and the altar connected to it, that it will be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord? Your life, your life is going to have an odor, I don't know if you realize that one way or the other. You're either going to have a really good odor before the Lord or you stinketh. Because when we walk in sin, that's what happens. We actually stink, in a sense. And Noah, he was a man who had this faith. And it was a sweet smelling aroma that was soothing to the Lord. The Lord smells it. Oh, that's nice. That's my servant. God will always bless us beyond whatever we give to him. You may lay yourselves before the altar. You may give of your life before God, but you will never be able to outgive God. God will always give more to you than you can give to him. And so Noah was blessed. God blessed him and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is, of course, a repeat of what he told Adam and Eve, several occasions, be fruitful and multiply. I think it's important to be fruitful and multiply. And I think that, you know, in today's world, people can have fear about being fruitful and multiplying, being, having children. There, there can be a fear these days because who wants to raise kids in this crazy society? But remember something, they're God's kids and he'll do what he wants with them and he still wants you to have them. I like telling that to young couples when they get married. I say, listen, be fruitful and multiply. And grandparents thank me very much so afterwards. I had one couple, they were a little older, <laughs> and I made a joke about them having a child and everybody laughed. They laughed, and about three months later, they were pregnant. I was like, I was prophetic. <laughs> and it says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the, fe- of the earth and every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. So now Noah is given more dominion over the world than was given even to Adam. Now he's got this dominion over every beast of the earth. And every moving thing that lives be, shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. This is the beginning of a carnivorous life. <laughs> Somebody said amen to that, Right? You know, the, up until this point, they ate vegetables. But now God says, I want you to go ahead and eat meat. And I'm thankful for that. I would rather eat meat than vegetables. I've learned to eat vegetables because, you know, I grew up and I never wanted to eat any vegetables. It just, you know, they just didn't appeal to me. But now I eat vegetables because I had to teach my kids how to do it. And then of course my grandkids are there and are you gonna eat the vegetables? Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm eating them. Now, by the way, there's always there's a bit of controversy about these things sometimes within the church. Some people think they're more spiritual because they eat they're vegetarians or they're vegans or they're their plant-based products or you know, and, and it kind of gets into these things. There was there's there's kinda even cults that pop up about them. I remember a number of years ago, everybody was juicing. It was like a juicing cult, you know. <laughs> God isn't saying you have to eat this or you have to eat that. He's giving them the freedom. You can eat now more. You can you can kill. Rise, Peter, kill and eat, so to speak. We'll talk about that later. You see, it, 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 as long as you're eating the food as unto the Lord, as long as you're eating it in, in a blessing and you're blessing, you're able to eat it in freedom, then it's fine don't judge each other about these things is really the, one of the most important things but notice he says but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood so there was a prohibition of drinking blood many of you will say well why would I want to drink blood anyway but do, but in fact you realize that in some cultures now we, there people do drink blood and the, people eat things with blood they eat Blood pie, or blood, or what's that called? Blood pudding, or black pudding, or whatever. It's blood. I don't know why they would do that, but they do it. But in Acts chapter 10, interestingly, in that story of Peter there, Peter sees all these unclean animals, because Leviticus will expand on all this, right? This is the beginning of, remember, Genesis is the book of beginnings, so this is the beginning of some dietary restrictions, And then in Leviticus, God will go into great detail on those dietary restrictions for the people of Israel. But remember when Peter was on the rooftop, God gave him a vision of all these foods that he was told, they were told not to eat in Leviticus. And here they are coming down in front of him, God saying, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. What's happening there? Well, the vision had a couple of reasons to it. It had, first of all, that it was obvious that they were under the new covenant then, and the ceremonial uh, rules and dietary restrictions were no longer applicable to the Christian. So there's, you know, it's you can eat whatever you want, and Peter would later on be eaten like a sausage dog, and he'd get rebuked by Paul because Paul saw him, saw him eating that hot dog. And then later on, he wouldn't eat it with the Jews around. Remember that whole argument? And so... It had that purpose, but then also a deeper meaning that Christ's salvation was open to the Gentiles. Now, the the church is opening in Acts chapter 10. And so, you know, when you look at this, you say, well, can you drink blood? Well, carnivorous Christians, you know, you can enjoy whatever you want to enjoy. There's no no restriction like this anymore. Now, again, I personally have no interest in these things. But there's no prohibition Um, and and even uncooked meat or, 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 you know, some people like their steak really rare. You say, well, that's blood, right? That's coming out of it. You can do, it's okay. You can do that. There's no restriction about that these days because this was a limitation that God was giving during this time period. New Testament believers have a freedom from the law But we're to stand firm in the liberty. Now, here's where it gets dicey: is that we need to make sure that whatever we do, whether we eat meat or we don't eat meat. And there was a big argument within the church about meat sacrificed to idols. Remember that? How the apostle Paul had to address that to to the Corinthian church, that they were eating these meats, and they some were saying it was condemning them, and was. Uh, There was arguments and there was division going on between them. And some were stumbling over the fact that others were eating meat. And Paul said, listen, if if it causes my brother to stumble, I not only won't eat meat, I'll never eat anything again. I'll never eat that meat again or any other meat. I don't need it. Relationship is more important. My relationship with my brothers and sisters is far more important than what I put in my mouth. So it isn't, this isn't connected to salvation, we know, even here. Nothing is unclean in itself, Paul would later say. And he would never eat meat again if it caused his brother to stumble. So here's the thing. In today's world, does this apply? Don't drink blood. Look, if you want to order your meat, medium rare or rare, it's okay. You're free in the Lord to do that. Because it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out of your heart. It's what's already there. And so he goes on to tell him why, because he says, "For surely your lifeblood, I will remain demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man." So here is the regarding regarding the killing of someone else's cattle. We'll talk about that in Leviticus. And God gives a, a broader picture later on, but he goes on to say whoever sheds man's blood, man his blood, by, his, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. This is the institution of capital punishment. And you know, here he introduces this. And he God puts the animal, he says. He puts into the animal the fear of man, and he puts into, the, into man the fear of God. You know, it's, it's God saying, look, you need to deal with these things. And we know that later on there would be cities of refuge that would be set up for these people. For people, if they were falsely accused or was an accidental death, they would have these cities of refuge. They'd be able to flee to those things because a family would still want to enforce capital punishment. Now, understand something. There's a difference between murder and killing. Murder, of course, is unrighteous killing. It's unrighteous murder. But there are people in the Bible that God sent to kill other people. All throughout the scriptures, we see the children of Israel going to battle against one another. Abraham did it. Uh, All the way through, Joshua, David, and many others. And war is not prohibited by God. Now, I think many wars, probably most wars, are unrighteous. You know, they're fought for wrong reasons, and for a lot of times it has money connected to it. I would think that the majority of our wars today are are connected to financial things. But there were wars that were righteous wars. I mean, World War II was a righteous war. Adolf Hitler was killing Millions and millions of people experimenting on people. And though we were not perfectly righteous in that war, the Allies, there was a righteousness connected to that war. And war is needed at times, and there's righteousness connected to those things. But capital punishment is also something that was put in the Bible and, and given to us. And some would argue that it doesn't apply today, and others would argue it does apply today. But here's an interesting t- statistic. In the last 20 years, the homicide rate in states with, death, with the death penalty has been 48 to 101% higher than those without the death penalty. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Listen, bottom line is we need revival. We need spiritual revival in our land because that's the only hope because there's murders and killings and all kinds of things going on all over our country. We are having more of this go on than ever before in our nation. Our cities are not safe anymore. Hey, praise the Lord, I did notice that the Minneapolis police, the Minneapolis voters did not defund the police department. I can't believe I even have to say that, you know, (laughs) that they were actually going to vote to defund the police. But that's the world we're living in these days. So here's the thing. God is saying here to Noah, and he's saying to us, life is sacred in the eyes of God. And so if a life is taken, a life is required. That's what he's saying. Imagine if that was going on with all the abortions that were happening. If, if, for, if for every aborted life, there was another life that was taken who committed the abortion or who went through with that. But he goes on again in verse 70. He says, but as for you, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, God says, I want to I wanna focus on life, not on death. I want you to see that life is important. And he says bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Be fruitful and multiply. Have children. Cuz remember he left them with only 8 people on the earth. So he's saying, hey, you guys you got to be busy. You need to have some kids. You need to multiply here. And here in verse 8, this is where we really start to get into the meat of this section. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant. I want you to really note the wording there. And with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. And here's the covenant. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now there are floods still these days, right? But there never again will be a flood that will destroy the whole earth. This is a covenant. A covenant is the word covenant actually means to cut in two. It's it's God is, is making a covenant. And it's, 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 to, it's a central thing. He's, he's saying, I'm centering this. I'm putting you right in the middle of this, and I'm in the middle of this. It's a covenant that he solely sets up. And listen, the covenants of God are solely dependent upon God. They're not dependent upon you or me. And this is the thing I want you to see tonight. That God is the one who establishes the covenant. His covenant. He is the one who initiates the covenant. He is the one who initiates relationship with you and I. He is the one who preserved Noah and his sons. If it weren't for God, there would be no one to have a covenant with. God is the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to establish a covenant for us. He's the one who called you into a covenant relationship with him. And he demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God did that. You know, many times we say, "I got saved. I did this." I did. no, 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 no. God did it. If it weren't for God, you wouldn't have any of it. If it weren't for Him initiating, if it weren't for Him working, if it weren't for Him calling, even the faith that you have, He deposited in your heart. He gave you the ability to believe. He saves us. He redeems us. And he will one day take us to, le- to heaven. He will do that. God does it. It's God's work. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? To tell a story. It is finished. It is finished. I have completed the work that my Father has sent me to do. God did it. Jesus did it. What a great God we serve, amen? And look at, look at what he gave us to prove this. And this is the sign of the covenant, which I make between me and you. Notice again, which I make between me and you, God's saying. Every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, I make this covenant with you and with every living creature. I set my rainbow in the cloud. Don't you love rainbows? Man, I tell you, you see a rainbow. You, if, As a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ and knowing this verse, you can't see a rainbow without thinking of this, right? Isn't that true? I mean, every rainbow I see, I, don't, I, don't, I remember before I was a Christian, if I saw a rainbow, I'd be like, oh, look at the colors, the various colors, i count the colors, you know. And you still do that. But the first thing I think of is Noah now. Actually, the first thing I think of is God. And then I think of Noah. But I want you to notice what he says there. I have set my rainbow in the cloud. You know, the rainbow has been tried to get hijacked. I don't know if you know that. There's a particular group that has tried to hijack the rainbow, the LGBTQ people. And and they do it on the guise that the rainbow speaks of new beginnings and the rainbow speaks of, of forgiveness and the rainbow speaks of all these things, these nice little things. But listen, it isn't their rainbow. It's God's rainbow. And they can try and hijack it all they want. It's not theirs. They can't have it. It's God's. God says it right here. I set my rainbow. God's very selfish about his rainbow. And it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth. And that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant between my, me and you, and every living creature that is all in all the flesh and the waters, and sh- shall never again become a flood to destroy, destroy a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. I'm gonna remember, God says. Now God doesn't forget. God doesn't need like a reminder. Let's set, let me set the rainbow reminder, click, you know, we have those reminders, right? If I don't use those, I, I really need those these days. I need the little ding on my phone that tells me where I'm supposed to go. God doesn't need that. But He uses this to, to tell us, I want to remember. I want you to see how much I want to remember my covenant. And so I'm going to set the rainbow in the clouds. And every time I put that rainbow, every time there is a rainbow, God's saying, that's my rainbow, and it's a sign of my covenant with you. It's my sign. It's my rainbow. God's saying, hey, I want you to know. I want you to know that, that I see and I know what took place here in Genesis. And I know what I'm doing and I know that I've started again with Noah. It speaks of the whole covenant. And the the, the covenant is that God says, I'll never destroy the earth by flood again. And when we look at that rainbow, we can know that God is faithful to his word, amen? Amen. And we can know that God will do what he says he will do. What a wonderful blessing that is, right? And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I established between me and all flesh on the earth. I'm setting my rainbow in that cloud. I'm, I'm, it'll be a sign for the covenant between you and I. For this is the, in like manner the waters of Noah to me, for I have sworn... Note, I'm sorry, I'm reading out of Isaiah chapter 54 in regards to the rainbow. I forgot where I was for a second. Noah would no longer cover the earth. Waters, the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So I have sworn that I would be, not be angry with you nor rebuke you. That's the part of the, the covenant. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10. For the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10, what a great, powerful verse. It's an everlasting covenant. He speaks of it again in Ezekiel where he says, it, the rainbow, it's like an appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so that the appearance of the brightness of it all around, it was an, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's what the rainbow speaks of. Ezekiel says when he saw it, he fell on his face. And we see it again in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned how there's a rainbow around the throne of God two different times in chapter 4 and chapter 10 in Revelation. And so verse 18, it says, so Noah, the sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. That's important, by the way. Keep that in your mind. Ham's the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. From from these, the whole earth was populated. God says, hey, I'm starting over. So listen. We are one race, you guys. One race, the human race. And we all came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Nobody else. That's it. This is where the restart was. This is the great reset, right here. God's reset. And Noah began to be a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. Uh Uh-oh. And he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, we don't know if this is the first occurrence of fermentation. Perhaps it was. So perhaps this began as an innocent thing by Noah. We don't know. He's drinking of the fruit of the vine. And we don't know if that prior to this there was fermentation. Now, it could have been. But there may not have been. And so you have question marks with these verses. But what we do know is that Noah became drunk. And we know that he shouldn't have become drunk, right? It wasn't, it's not a good thing that Noah became drunk. He drank the wine, he was drunk. Now this is the first mention of drunkenness in the scripture. And Noah was sinful here. Now he became uncovered in his tent. We don't know again exactly what took place. But we do know that wine is a mocker. It tells us in Proverbs 20, verse 1. And that strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You know, I've been called on the carpet by some to say I'm a legalist when it comes to alcohol. I'm not a legalist when it comes to it. I'm just encouraging you to be wise. Good things do not come from drinking alcohol as a Christian and on a regular basis. They just don't come from it. In fact, I was in a Bible study one time in a prison and I asked this question to about 40 prisoners. And I said I said how many of you how many of you did your your case has nothing to do with drugs or alcohol? Is there any of you? And out of 40 some prisoners, not one of them raised their hand. Not one. Because this is what happens. It leads, to, leads down bad roads. It's not good to be drunk. And I can speak from experience on that. I did this in my younger days. I went down these roads. And they're not, it's not beneficial. In fact, I'm by the grace of God, I'm alive today. Many, many times I could have easily died from drinking alcohol. Proverbs chapter 20 is a great chapter to read on this, and you can look it up on your own there. But it tells us he became uncovered in his tent. Now, it may be that there's some kind of sexual thing going on here. We don't know for sure. The phrase became uncovered is the idea of nakedness and and it could be associated with sexual things of some kind. We don't know. But we know it was a shameful thing for sure. And it's a repulsive thing to think of, but when you drink alcohol, you don't know what you're doing half the time. And it says that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness nakedness of his father and told two brothers, Outside, his two brothers. He saw his father's nakedness. Now, again, we don't know if it's just that he's seeing him naked and he's uncovered and he's laughing at him or if there's some immoral thing going on here. But at very least, he's mocking his father and showing him great disrespect to a man of God. That's the minimum of what happened here. We don't know the maximum. We don't really know what took place. Now, by the way, this is the only failure we see in the life of Noah of, of, of almost 900 years up to this point. Uh, that's a pretty good record. <laughs> but it's a shameful thing because Noah is laying in his tent, drunk and naked. Man of God. And by the way, that word saw, where it says that Ham saw the naked of his father, the word idea there is that he looked on it a long time. He didn't just, not like he just saw him and walked away. And the, 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 the word told there is about mocking and it's about delight. In other words, his son made fun of him. But it says that Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. What a contrast between Ham and then Shem and Japheth. He takes, they take the, the blanket, uh, some kind of blanket or something, and they back up with it and they won't even look and they drop it onto their dad. These two is a picture of grace that covers our sin. It wouldn't even look on the nakedness of our father, protecting his dignity, covering his failure. Do you know that love covers a multitude of sins? There's nothing more freeing when you've talked to someone and you've confessed something to them. And then they tell you, hey, it's over. I don't want to hear about it again. And they never bring it up to you again the rest of your life. There's something wonderfully comforting in that. And there's some, something that's got a dignity connected to that. Can you, will you be a one who covers others' sins rather than expose them? Because listen, we can so easily expose people. It's very easy for us to step into the world of gossip. We hear about a brother or a sister who's fallen, who's struggled with something, and we go to someone else and we say, hey, did you hear? May that not be coming from us. Even if it's true, it doesn't have to come out of us. We don't have to be the deliverer of that news. I've unfortunately seen so many men, friends of mine, people I know who've fallen. Recently, another one took place, and and I I had someone close to me that was posting this information on Facebook. Facebook. And it was fairly public information. It's a fairly famous person. And, and they're posting all this stuff. And, and this is someone I know really well. Both of them I know well. But this particular person who is posting these things, I know really well. And I contacted them. And I said, would you do, for, do this for me? In fact, more importantly, would you do this for the Lord? Would you take down the post? Yeah, maybe people are going to find out about it but you don't have to be the vessel of it. You don't have to be the deliverer of the news that someone has sinned. You can step away from that. See, that's a choice we make. And when we make that choice, we cover, we're dropping a blanket on their their nakedness. We're covering them in grace. And we would want them to do the same for us. Sometimes we kind of like being in that messy place with the sin and talking about it. It's, it's not good, guys. It's not healthy for us. And we're, we're borderlining being guilty of the sin of Ham when we go there. Well, Noah wakes up. He says, Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done to him. Now, this this is what indicates that it was something more than just looking. He knew what his son had done to him. And perhaps the grandson, Canaan, who he's going to end up cursing, was involved in this somehow. We don't know. The Bible doesn't give us the details. But he says, Cursed be Canaan. And it seems strange that he would curse Canaan, the son of Ham, his own grandson, instead of Ham himself. But there's a, a point to this as a grandfather that I don't know that I realized this before, but as a grandfather now, you know, if I did something wrong, and as a dad, you know, if you did something wrong, if I do it, curse me. It hurts me more for you to curse my kid. You know, that's, that's more painful if they're reaping what I've sown. Or maybe they followed along with what I did. And now they're being held responsible. Now, God didn't punish the son for the sin of the father. There's, clearly, that isn't God, what he does. He's, Noah was drunk and Noah is guilty here too. And what you start to remember sometimes after you've been drunk and you wake up from it, it's not easy to remember. It's not easy to walk that road. By the way, he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren and blessed be the Lord God of Shem and may Canaan be his servant and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So he turns Canaan basically into a servant. And the Canaanites would become one of the longest standing enemies of Israel. It's a line that's gonna be cursed. Now, by the way, there's a myth about this that this is referring to black people and, and this has actually been taught for you know through the many years of Bible teaching. People said that this the mark on them, and then the other one is the mark of Cain. It that's nonsense. Total nonsense. It's just something to justify prejudice. But here, interestingly, you know, you know who was a Canaanite? Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. And she's found in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And she's used by God to free the slaves. By the way, we see Shem, and he's, he'll be in the lineage where Abraham comes from. He'll live a long life. In fact, some of, the, some of the studies you read say that he actually outlived Abraham. He lived past Abraham. Abraham died and then Abraham, Shem was still alive. We don't realize how crossover here. These guys lived a long time in those days. Abraham only lived 170 years, I think it was, or 147, I can't remember. But we're gonna see that Noah lived over 900 years. The oldest guy, Methuselah, lived 969 years. That's old. <laughs> you realize that it, it, you realize that if we were living that long, then I would be I would be considered like less than a teenager. <laughs> Those a different. They were different. Their, their, their metabolic system had to have been somewhat different. And and the flood. You see before the flood and after the flood, you see a dramatic drop. And some believe, and it's probably true, that the the the, the rays from the sun began to bring more death more quickly, perhaps, because before the flood, it, it seems as though they lived with a canopy over the earth. There had never been rain, and yet the earth was was had vegetation, so there had to be water. So, you know, again, the scientists who studied these things say that there was like this canopy sort of tropical environment. Where there was a a mist that they lived with all the time. And so age changed at this point. It says Noah lived after the flood 350 years. (laughs) Imagine all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And by the way, that means that Noah lived until Abraham was fifty eight years old I have a well it used to be in my office here it's I don't know where it is it's stored away somewhere now but I had a, a a timeline and it shows a crossover it's like a big book that you open up and it goes up on a wall big map sort of and it shows a crossover of all these people and their ages and the time periods it's it's not a it's not exact, because we don't know the exact dates. But we can see those crossovers. Chapter 10. So in chapter 10, we see, this, this is called the table of nations in ancient literature. And it is the most astonishingly accurate record of the establishment of nations that we have in existence. And again, reminding you that we all came from the same tree. We all came from Noah, and there were just three branches, Shem, Ham, Japheth, which by the way, we as Gentiles, the majority of us are Gentiles, came from Japheth, that would have they would have gone to European. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that. In fact, it tells us here the sons of uh, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javal, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. You might recognize some of those names as we get into prophecy later on. We'll see some of those names. They, they're. Majority or uh, European, Asian area, and then Ham would have been connected with Canaan and the Canaanites, and then Shem is of the messianic line, and that's who we're going to see the greatest detail on, is Shem's line, because remember the reason for the genealogies as you go through them is they track back and track forward to back to Adam and forward to Christ. That's that's what the genealogies are all about. Anytime you read a genealogy, look for that thread within the genealogy. And it says the sons of Gomer were Ashkema and Rifa and Tagarma, which is considered to be possibly Armenia. Again, some of these things are hard to trace back. The sons of Javan were Elisha, uh, which is again, they, people say Cyprus, perhaps. Tarshish is, could be Spain, Britain. Kittim is, could be Cyprus. Dottoman is Rhodes. You know, again, they tie these things. This is ancient. This is so ancient, it's very difficult. And it says, from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Isn't that interesting? We have varieties of languages, and they're separated to the coastlands. And by the way, this is looking back from chapter 11 after the language has changed. So it's not, it, this is not chronological now. It says the sons of Ham were Cush, which is Arabia, Mizram, Put, which is Libya, North Africa area, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabda, Rama, Sabtacha, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. All of those are again of Arabia. All this area is Arabia. And Cush begot uh, Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, and he was mighty, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now I want to pause right here for a minute and I want you to see that Nimrod is the father of Babylon. The Babylonian connection, sort of. And they, they settle in this place called Shinar, Shinar, which is where Babylon is located. And there's a deliberate rebellion against God's word that you're gonna see in the next chapter, in chapter 11, as they begin to build this tower uh, to the heavens. He's the father of Babylon. Uh, remember, this is the book of origins. So this is the origin now of the beginning of idolatry with Nimrod. He, there's, a, there's historical studies that they've done, and they've got records of of Nimrod and his wife, Simiramis, and Tammuz, their child, supposedly born without a father. She was called the queen of heaven, and became the spearhead of the Asherah, Ishtar, picture of the Madonna. All these things are idolatrous. And this is the root of idolatry in so many cultures. In fact, when you study idolatry in various cultures in the Greek and the Roman cultures, it's the same gods, they just change their names. And by the way, when we get to Revelation, when Babylon is destroyed, there's a celebration in heaven with the destruction of Babylon. Because Babylon is, is known to be an evil place. And the beginning of the kingdom was Babel. By the way, the word Babel means gate of God. It's come to known, known to mean other words, these Babel today now, it's a language program. <laughs> Ironic that they call it Babel. I won't sign up for that, even if I could get it for free, just because they call it Babel. <laughs> and they have Akka and Kalna and the, Shinar, the land of Shinar, which is ancient Babylon. Uh, and from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. So this is Nimrod. He went and built Nineveh. Rehoboth. Kalah and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kalah—that that is the principal city. So they, verge, they, they merge into this one city and they call the one city Nineveh. And you might remember that Jonah was one who went to preach to Nineveh. Nineveh becomes this massive city of the Assyrians and it is, it is known to be one of the most wicked and most powerful cities in ancient history. And Jonah did not want to go there because they were so idolatrous and they were killing his, his brethren. Uh, Mizram begot Lumen and Anamon and all these various ones. You can pronounce those on your own. I know you can't wait. Now, by the way, when it says that Nimrod was a hunter, it doesn't refer to hunting animals, but it's about hunting men. That's the, that's the thing this word hunter is. And so this Babylon, it, it's it's... It's a rebellion against God. And they will later say in chapter 11, come let us build a city to ourselves and a tower whose top is in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we are scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Mike's gonna talk about this next week. I think it's Mike that's teaching next week. And Babylon, is, it's important because it's, it's symbolic of man's false religious systems. That's what, that's what it's a setup as. And we're gonna see that in the last days there will be a Babylon that's raised up once again. And it will be, Babylon will be a, a false religion and a false teaching, and it'll be that one world religion that's raised up, and it's on its way. There's an ecumenical movement that's very powerful in our world today. And it's not based on truth. It's not based on Christianity. It's based on unity as you see Catholics and Muslims and and Sikhs and various people getting together and joining together and saying they're worshiping the same God. It began all the way back here. And it began back here where they're trying to build a gateway to heaven, a gateway to God by their own strength. That's, That's human religion. That's exactly what human religion is. It is us trying to build a way to get to God. A stairway to heaven, so to speak. Fortunately, there is a gateway. But it's not one that we built going up. It's one that was built from the top down. And it's Jesus who came down from heaven to earth. And he is the ladder of Jacob. He is Jacob's ladder. He is the, the, the cross is the answer. The only way that you and I can have relationship with the Father well Canaan, verse 15, begot Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusite, which Jebus is, becomes Jerusalem, interestingly, and the Amorite and the Girgashite, and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite, and ultimately the Mosquitobite. And Ar- Ardovite and the Samarite and the Hamathite. Afterwards the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar. As far as Gaza, now there's a familiar name, Gaza. Then as you go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, some more familiar names, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha, and these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to the languages of their lands and their nations. Now, as we come to this, this is the lineage we're interested in. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, which is Persia, Asher, Afaxad, Lud, and Amrams, which are the Syrians, Mesopotamia, the Armenians. Uh, again, all these kind of roll together. The sons of Aram were Uz, not Oz, but Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash, uh, short names, here we get a lot of short names, then we get some long names. Arphaxad begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber, which becomes habarai which was where we get Hebrew from. The term Hebrew comes from Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, which means divided. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jok- Joktan, Joktan begot Almadad. These are some great names, by the way, if you, you're looking for a baby book. You know? Uh, Sheleph and Maveth. There's one for you. Jera and Hadaram and Uzal and Dikla and Obel and Abimlal and Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, which, by the way, Jobab is probably Job. They used nicknames back then, too. Shortened his name to Jobab. Or from Jobab to Job. And all these, and by the way, Job probably predated Genesis. Like it it's, it's predates maybe as far back during the time of Adam even. It just, you know, time in there. We don't know Job's dates. We know that's old. Uh, and all these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Misha. As you go towards Shephar, the mountains of the east... These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. So there we have it, the table of nations. The descendants of Shem are recorded last here, and Shem is the lineage that leads to Christ, and so that's the one we're interested in. These families were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations, and these were the... And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So there we have chapters 9 and 10. I wasn't sure I'd get through it, but thank you for your patience. Let's pray together.